Welcome to Season 1 of American Political History, Prelude. History is hard to bookend. There's no good place to start or finish. Historical events are always influenced by the history that preceded it. As such, I will have to pick a moment in time to start American history. Knowing I will not be able to explain the causes of those events, but just to give them to you as a prelude to our main narrative. And as all good histories of the United States do, I'll be starting with a flyover of the Reformation and Spanish Armada in like 10 to 15 minutes. So here goes. The Reformation was a schism of religious thinking within the Christian world, beginning with writings that questioned the supremacy of the Catholic Church. It had spread over a century and a half by 1620 into open warfare between kingdoms all over the Christian world. The Reformation of Christianity was based on two fundamental tenets. First, nowhere in Scripture did it talk about a pope being necessary to have a relationship with God. There is no Scripture talking about a gatekeeper to God, and many Scriptures talk about an individual relationship with with God. This schism came about because of the ever-increasing literacy rates during the Renaissance in Europe. As more people could read the Bible for themselves and form an individual relationship with God, what was the need for a unified, hierarchical Catholic Church to tell you about God? Catholicism was, and still is structured with a Pope, God's representative on earth, who will run the administration of God's works on earth through the Catholic Church. And this structure had served the Christian world well enough through the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages of Europe are really a breakdown of literacy and all the benefits of a literate society. Literacy might seem like a small thing in a society today, which has almost universal literacy. And in our society, we forget the most basic and extraordinary things that literacy allows. Literacy allows nothing short of the transportation of an individual's knowledge down through time. I'll take this profound statement back a few notches. Does your family have some delicious family recipes? Have any of them been lost to time? Did your great-grandma make the best chicken parm? Is that knowledge lost because no one wrote it down? Or with the technology of literacy, can your great-grandma, who you never met, pass her knowledge directly down to you today through a recipe? This is an ordinary, extraordinary thing. Imagine a society where almost nothing was being written down. All of the books in Europe in the Dark Ages would have counted only in the thousands. And each book would have had a value equivalent of something like a nice three-bedroom house today. Literacy allows not only knowledge to transport through time, but for generations to compound their knowledge together, learning quickly without having to reinvent discoveries of the past generations, then adding their own lifetime of discoveries, generation by generation, to the collective knowledge. Literacy is the foundation of all scientific and philosophical knowledge in the world, even today. 
and Europeans' general knowledge of the world exploded with literacy and in the invention of the printing press in 1440, which suddenly could produce enough written knowledge so cheaply almost any gentleman could buy their very own Bible. The Reformation was a direct consequence of the literacy and an abundance of Bibles that individuals could read for themselves. Without mass literacy, you needed that hierarchical, structured church to promote the study of both religion and science. In the Dark Ages, the Catholic Church was the only institution in Europe with the wealth and institutional structure to have individuals educated and work in non-labor-based professions. This is why the Catholic Church was so vital to European culture in the Dark Ages. Although, European culture wasn't really a thing before the events of the Reformation. In the Dark Ages, there was only those bound within the Christian world and the Catholic Church and those outside of it. The Catholic Church was the only institution in Europe with the ability to hold any collective knowledge and culture. And even then, much of that knowledge was lost during the Dark Ages. The second tenet of the Reformation was that the grace of God over the sinful state of humanity. The ideology of the Catholic Church was that all humans needed to pay penance for the original sin of humanity with Adam and Eve. Martin Luther argued in the Reformation that through Jesus' sacrifice, God had given a path to grace, forgiveness, for all of humanity. Romans 3.23-3.24 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The Protestants argued this was a declaration of priesthood of all believers. Anyone baptized to be a Christian, as John had shown, was born anew as equals in Jesus' eyes. This was not only a direct challenge to the hierarchical order of the Catholic Church, but also it challenged the divine right of Catholic kings of Europe. The Catholic monarchies of Western and Southern Europe would fight the Northern European monarchs over the direction of Christianity for two centuries. This schism of faith created a societal normalization of war over belief and promoted an existential battle between the two faiths for scientific knowledge, material wealth, territory, and of course, a battle of the souls of humanity. And this was an existential battle. Because not keeping up with the other side in any field of discovery would mean risking being conquered. And being conquered in this era was a death sentence for the defeated ruling class and often rape, pillage, and enslavement for the lower classes. They would be the spoils of that war. To our standards today, this was a time of brutality, pestilence, starvation, and murder. Violence and death was just a commonplace part of life. And yet, the religious schism added even more death to that European society. On St. Bartholomew's Day, 1572, King Charles of France ordered the killing of a group of Huguenot leaders. The Huguenots were the name of the French Protestant Calvinists. The Huguenots had been in Paris as part of the French kingdom's celebration of the wedding of the king's sister. As the king's men assassinated the Huguenot leaders in a tavern, Catholic masses sparked by this violence spontaneously erupted into city-wide mob violence against all suspected Huguenots. The River Seine would run red from blood of those killed. Bodies would wash ashore downriver for weeks. 
pictures of the time show babies cradle and all being thrown into the river to be drowned alive. The violence would spill out into the rural areas around Paris. It is estimated that 10 to 20,000 Protestant French people were murdered by their own countrymen in the weeks that followed St. Bartholomew's Day. The St. Bartholomew's Day massacre is one of the more famous examples of religious violence during the Reformation, but sadly, it is not by any means the exception. And these events would cement the idea in the Protestant world that Catholics were by nature untrustworthy and murderous, turning the leaders in England, many of which were Protestant, against the Catholic Church. But the pilgrims of our story lived in England, a Protestant country. They didn't face the risk of Catholic mobs in England. Although Protestant, in Protestant England, they represented a new of the numerous fractures of the Protestant beliefs in Europe. They rejected the notion that there should be a Church of England, Protestant or not. A church that required attendance, ties, and a predefined relationship with God by their practices and precepts. After all, what was truly the difference between a Church of England and a Church of Rome? Had the Protestant Reformation not been about forming an individual relationship with God? Had England not just replaced one hierarchical church for another? But in a country, England, where king or queen was at the head of the church, questioning the legitimacy of the church was the same as questioning the queen's very judgment, and therefore her legitimacy to rule. In England, if you did not attend the monarch's church, worship the way the monarch prescribed, led by a crown-approved priest, soon to be reading the King James Version of the Bible, you would be fined roughly the equivalent of around $5,000 in today's money per absence from the church. 16th century churches were not just a place of faith. It was a mixture of worship and state bureaucracy. The church's other purpose was to aid in the administration of the crown government. The first thing they did was call roll each day. This was a powerful tool for the crown. Getting a census of the population might seem simple today with our advanced computer censuses, but the church allowed for some of the first accurate estimations for taxation and levy numbers in case of war. Their churches were almost the only way for rulers to have any knowledge of the people and areas they rule. For us living in nation-states today, this concept of a lack of knowledge of one's people might seem strange. But the nation-state is an invention of the 19th century. Europe, and I have been using this term for ease of understanding, was also not really a thing, nor was the nation-states of France, Spain, Italy, or the United Kingdom. Europe was populated in that time with rulers of individual kingdoms or families that ruled multiple kingdoms. To give this some context, there is about 200 nation-states in the world today. In Europe in 1600, it was a fabric of 300 different kingdoms, and 100 years before that in 1500, there was about 500 separate kingdoms of Europe. Kingdoms like Genovia, Aragon, Castile, Bohemia, Flanders, Naples. These were the different realms of Europe. But no one thought of themselves as European. The Spanish king in 1600 was not the king of the nation-state of Spain. He was the king of Castile, today central Spain, Aragon, eastern Spain, Naples, southern Italy, Sicily, Sardinia, Flanders, today Belgium, he was the Viceroy of Peru, the west coast of South America, the Viceroy of New Granada, Central America, the Viceroy of New Spain, Mexico and southwest U.S. territories, and the territory of Florida. 
Spain's initial navigational successes led to the Spanish rush to map the world, to claim everything they mapped as their kingdom. Cartography had power, not only in the New World, but in Europe. It shaped borders, placing on maps, rulership, and drawing lines of delineation between kingdoms for the first time since the Roman Empire well before the Dark Ages. Spain's success in the New World, of both claiming untold regions of land and bringing back hundreds of thousands of tons of gold and silver in the 16th century, made them the first empire that the sun never set on, allowing them to fight off the Ottomans in the Mediterranean, Protestants in the lowland of northern Europe, and raise a fleet to put an end to the heretic queen in London. This plan for invasion of England was simple. It always is. Land your troops across the channel for sure victory. English armies are never competitive with mainland European armies. Spain assembled a massive fleet that would sail from Spain to Flanders, where a large Spanish army was assembled. It would then escort them to a sure victory over London. The war would be over quickly and England would once again be a Catholic monarchy under Queen Mary. The world would be a very different place if the Spanish had won this war, but they didn't. Queen Elizabeth had invested in pirate fleets to attack and steal Spanish gold in the Caribbean, and naval technology in general. She recalled every ship of the realm to fight a winner-take-all battle in the Channel. The English would go on to sink about one-third of the Spanish fleet in warfare, and another third would run aground in bad weather attempting to escape back to Spain. When all was said and done, England would become a major upstart naval power in the world. But there would be one more lasting effect on English culture— in 1570, well before the Spanish invasion, Pope Pius V had excommunicated Queen Elizabeth. He expected and envisioned an uprising of English Catholic commoners once they were unbound from their godly servitude to their monarch. But he was wrong. The excommunication by the Catholic world only strengthened Elizabeth's rule. It was thought that the only binding force that held a monarch in power was God's commandments over the people for godly service to their monarchs. This had been the paradigm for generations in Europe. Monarchs have a divine right to rule. People needed to follow or face damnation from God for defying the monarch's will. With the excommunication, Elizabeth was able to plant the seeds of a new idea, that of the Englishman. After all, victory would come down to the unity of the people of England, of the unity of the Englishman and the English responded to their monarch's call by accepting that Queen Elizabeth might be an excommunicated heretic, but she was their heretic, and they fought with a newfound unity that helped to defeat the Spanish Armada. And although that unity would not last longer than the war, the paradigm of divine rulership surely had cracked that day, and the seeds of the Englishman's political conscience had been planted. And within two generations of the Spanish Armada, the House of Lords and Parliament would demand a Bill of Rights, and that would lead to an English civil war against a king, and they, Parliament, would judge that king as incompetent, removing him from the throne, and later executing him. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.